Why don't you grab your Bibles? We're going to turn to the book of Romans. I hesitate to say this. I was going to say I've got a shorter message prepared this morning. The problem is every time I mention that, it ends up backfiring spectacularly. But I do have that sense this morning of um, just allowing the Lord some room. Certainly we're going to turn to scriptures, but that's my heart's desire. I feel like Catherine's kind of already preached the sermon and the focus and theme really is that reality of God calling us back to himself, that passion and that fire of a first love. Well, let me pray. And then, as I said, I want to intentionally just give the Lord some space this morning and see what he wants to do. So, Father, we just thank you for the joy it is to know you. What a privilege that you would call us by name, that you would make a way so completely for us to come boldly before your throne of grace, to know you. Father, may we never take for granted the reality of the price that you paid and the gift that you've given to us. And that's my desire in my life personally, in our midst, Lord, that you would draw us closer to your heart. May we discover as that that lady did, that sinful woman who is a picture of us. May we discover afresh that one who is worthy of all that we are, where there's no other response than to pour out all that we have and all that we are on your feet as an offering of worship. Lord, would you speak to us through your word? We thank you for your scriptures. Thank you that it's a light to our feet. It's a lamp. Thank you that it's a two-edged sword. It's able to convict Thank you that it's a, a firm foundation that we stand upon. May it have life. May it go forth with your power to accomplish great things for the glory of your name. King Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Well, we're in Romans 6, so we're continuing this journey through the book of Romans. And for those who were here last week, you'd see we reached this point and this place where Paul's unpacked the gospel. It's what he said up front. I'm... I'm here to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus, this proclamation of who he is and what he's done. He said, I'm not not ashamed of it. This is the message that has weight and it has power as it's proclaimed unto salvation. So he's unpacked what it is. We've talked about this great dilemma, this great need that every human has of the gift that he offers, his gift of salvation. We talked about justification. We walked our way through faith. What is the nature of faith? And then we found ourselves last week in Romans chapter 5 in this place called grace. In fact, he concludes the chapter he's talking about in verse 21 by way of review. He says, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This new era, this new epoch called or we could call it the reign, the rule of grace, this place of grace that we're now invited into, that we now live in. Chapter 6, verse 1, and we mentioned this just as a parenthesis to know where Paul was heading, but he says this as he begins chapter 6 in response to that which he's unpacked in chapter 5. He says, what do we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And the thought that that left us with last week was there should be this notion as we comprehend 
as we unpack, as we receive in our own lives this gift of grace, there's almost that thought, which Paul will quickly rebuff, but there's almost that thought that this, this is incredible. The more sin abounded, the more his grace was available. And it kind of makes some logical sense, doesn't it? If, if in the midst of our sin and depravity, the greater the sin, the more grace we receive, then why wouldn't we keep on sinning? Like, we get the grace, he gets the glory. Why, why would we just not continue in that? Like, it, it makes some sort of logical sense. And certainly it's a picture of the, the radical reality of grace. But Paul quickly rebuffs that. He says in verse 2, and we'll read a, a good chunk of this chapter and then come back. He says, by no means. No. See, no. It's an emphatic no. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Now, I want you to note how many times this phrase, not only this morning as we read through this chapter, is mentioned. This newness of life. Verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who's died has been set free from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death has no longer any dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. A couple more verses. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, literally your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments... For righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So grace is not an excuse to sin, not a license to sin. It's the very power and provision that God gives to us to walk and live in the new life that he offers us. So why not? Why should we not just keep on sinning? That's the question for us this morning. And if then, if that's not the life that we're to live, then what does this new life look like? And we should note up front, as Paul's already alluded to and as he'll unpack, there is a tension here. There is a wrestle. Have you ever noted there's, there's many things in the kingdom that are kind of between the now and the not yet? Anyone? Recognize and realize that? As in, we're heading for a resurrected body, yes? And yet, you get saved. There's a process to get there. Yeah, I mean, it'd be nice, wouldn't it? You go through the baptismal waters and you come out with a new body. I think we'd have a lot more people queuing up for that particular process. But there is this sense, and we've talked about justification this moment. Since you have been justified, this work of the cross that is forever proclaimed as we believe in him, we have been, past tense, made righteous. 
We will be in this process of glorification as we stand before him on the other side of the grave. But there's this little moment in the middle. And sometimes we gloss over it. Sometimes we're like, well, you just save and you go to heaven. And I don't know about you, but I'm like, well, what about the bit in the middle? Like, that's pretty important. How do we live this? What, what does it now look like for us? It's not just why should we not keep sinning, but then what, what is this life that we are supposed to live? What does it look like? How does it affect everything that we are and everything that we do? So there is this ongoing wrestle. The, the power, if you like, the penalty of sin has been paid. But we're in this wrestle between sin and flesh. That's the other tension. Does anyone notice she got saved and it didn't deal with the propensity that we have towards sin? Didn't automatically fix that problem. Well, it didn't for me. Maybe the rest of you are saints walking in perfection here, never struggling, never wrestling through everything. But we're in this wrestle. In fact, the end of chapter 7, Paul himself, the great apostle, he talks about that wrestle. There is a wrestle. We're caught in this tension. In the one sense, we have been justified and in another sense, we're in this process of what we call sanctification, of walking into this wonderful gift of, of holiness, of living this life out before that final curtain and final moment. And so this is like the, the impetus, this is the encouragement, this is the reality for us as we walk this journey out. And here's the first thing he notes. After asking this question, shall we, do, shall we continue? He said, absolutely not. Verse 3, he says, don't you know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, baptized into his death? And not only into his death, but as we have been raised, we've been raised into his life. So he's saying, you've got to recognize this, you've died to sin. In fact, baptism, which we love, we had some baptisms a couple of weeks ago, which is this public profession of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't save us, but it's, it's this powerful proclamation. It's this prophetic picture of what salvation is all about. As we go down into the waters, we're identifying with Christ's death. Not just Christ dying for us, but the old sinful nature is, is dead. It's, it's gone. It's done away with. And then as we come out of the waters, we are raised into new life. We come up into that resurrection. It's this, it's this picture, this proclamation of the reality of what salvation is all about. So he's like, don't you realize that you, you've come through that, you've, you've walked out of the tomb into new life. Like, why would you want to go and live back there? A bit like Lazarus, who Jesus physically raised from the dead. He walks out of the tomb. He's like, well, you know, thanks very much. Appreciate the new life. But I think I'll go back and just live in the grave clothes and the rotting flesh. It's like, it's, it's that, that's the picture. You've died. Why would that even be a thought in your mind? Why do you want to live back in the grave when there's new life on offer? So that's the picture. First of all, he's saying there is this death that has happened. The symbolism of baptism proclaims this great truth. You've come out of the grave, that which was your old life. Sin, it's only about death and decay. It's this path of futility, this path leading to death. And you've been raised from that to now live in the peace, the joy, and the hope of new life in Christ. The first thought is something has died. But the second thought is it's not just about what you've died from. It's about what you're now living for. 
There is true life on offer. So let's unpack this notion of what is this life then that we're taught in scriptures that Jesus is promising us as we believe in him. Well, first of all, I want you to ponder this. What is the nature of this life? What is the source of this life? And it's there, it's not a trick question, it's there three times in this particular passage. We're brought from death to life. We've died to sin, verse 10, but the life he lives, he lives to God. The actual translation there is he lives in God. He lives in the provision of life that Christ has given to us. So what is the source of this life? Is Paul here saying, well, you've, you've died and you now get to live a life that is more of the same of what you were doing before, just free from the penalty of sin? Now, that would be something in and of itself. I'd be signing up for that. Sign me up just enough to kind of help me get through this thing to the other side. But there's a far more profound and wonderful picture in this passage here. He's saying the life you live, you now live in Christ. You now participate in his life. Another way to put it is, I no longer live, but Christ lives where? In me. See, there's, there's this reality of his life is lived in me. I live in his life. Does that make sense? Are we grabbing a hold of that? There's this sense of true life on offer. Now, this is why this is important. Because we're talking about here, in verse 14, he concludes, Sin has no dominion over you, so present your bodies, present everything that you are to God as instruments for righteousness. We're called to live in righteousness. We could phrase this another way and say, well, the call is to be holy. Who's heard that phrase before? Be holy. We're called to live in holiness. Well, what is this notion of holiness? Because sometimes we hear holiness and we think of it as a to-do list. Here's how you live holy. This is primarily something I do. This is adherence to a set of rules and requirements. Holiness is, you know, people who have that certain air about them. They wear certain sorts of clothes. They do. They talk very properly. Anyone have that picture of holiness? Depending on what circles you grew up in, perhaps. See, the problem is that this notion of us working our way to holiness, if, if that is indeed what we are called to, the problem is the reference point for righteousness, as we've already discovered as we've gone through this book, or the reference point of holiness is God's holiness. How, how holy is God? You know, what is this notion of his holiness? We often talk in scripture, it's this mega theme about the holiness of God, and it's it's often uh, scholars like to refer to it as the undefiable, undefinable characteristic of God. It is that which makes him different and separate from all the created beings. We, we have no parameters to really truly define his holiness. He is God. It's what sets him apart. We get these moments, don't we, Isaiah 6, where he, he sees, he beholds the holiness of God. The Lord, holy, 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 he's, he's uh, you know, caught up into the heavenly throne room. And it says he is undone. He's just overwhelmed by the holiness 
of God by his beauty, his glory, and his majesty. And of course, he responds. He says, God, huh, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live in a world surrounded by unclean people. See, the point is this. If you're striving to arrive in holiness, I salute you. Pat on the back. Good luck. You're far braver than I am. Because remember, the goal of holiness, therefore, is to be like God. That's not a place that we can somehow arrive in in our own works. Holiness is not about some external conforming to a list of rules and requirements. Holiness is about participating in the gift of life that he gives to us. So we need another definition. Definition, John Piper puts it this way. I love this quote and this phrase. He says, the battle, or we could say, as we talked about, the wrestle for holiness, the battle for sanctification is a battle fought at the level, not of what we do, he says, but of what we love, what we cherish and treasure and delight in. So holiness is not what we work up within ourselves. Holiness is the free gift of participating in the life that he offers to us. He is holy. He says, be holy as I am holy. And it's not to live with a new set of works. We could define it like this. It's to live with a new passion or a new love. Here's my definition here. If, you want, if you're a definition person and you like it, if you don't like this one, you can come up with your own. See, the heart of holiness, and this, this is not the totality of it, we'll move from here to talk about some other aspects because there's two chapters where Paul talks about this wrestle for what it means and what it looks like for us. But, but here's where it begins, I believe. It's my definition. It's this. It's where the passion of living fully in the life and love of Christ swallows up any remnant of the fleeting passions of this world. It's fully living with this passion for him, for Jesus, to such an extent that all the fleeting passions of this world fade away. It's first and foremost a question and an issue and a notion of who you will love. Remember, for those who are here, as we've begun this series in a different sort of way, as we like to do around here, but we looked at Romans 12 as Paul builds up this case as he's unpacking the gospel, and there's this moment where he says, I, I give you this urgent call. This, this, this is kind of where I'm landing this whole thing. He says, this is my appeal. This, this is your response. He says, in view of the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's the only acceptable form of worship. It's just like this lady who um, Catherine was mentioning, this sinful woman who's discovered some, not just something, someone who is worthy of her everything. And so she brings all she has and pulls it out in the feet of Jesus. And you know, the thing that I love most about that story, there's many things that, that uh, are confronting and are wonderful truths. But it's this phrase that Jesus says to those people who are around him as he honors this woman. And he says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, tell this story of the woman in honor of this act that she's done. Think of the, the weight of that instruction of Jesus. It's the only thing that Jesus specifically says as he's going to commission his disciples to proclaim the gospel as it spreads to the end of the world. He says, tell that story. 
Now, there's part of me that says, well, why not Lazarus coming out of the tomb? That's a cool story. A dead man comes out of the grave clothes. and un- I mean, that's... What about the walking on the water? What, 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 I mean, they're good stories, and certainly they're retold and recounted. But he says, tell that story. And here's why I believe that one in particular, Jesus attaches the necessity of telling it with the proclamation of the gospel. Because it's the only one story I can think of in the gospels. There's many stories where people come to Jesus for what Jesus can do for them. People seeking healing. Even his own disciples the week before he's crucified, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to hold this position of honor. There was still something in them that was hanging around Jesus for what he was going to do for them. But then there's this one account recorded in the Gospels of a woman who seeks out Jesus for no other reason than what she can give to him. And see, that is the heart of the gospel, is that we hear this message proclaimed and there's no other response. There's nothing else we can possibly do that is right and proper. As Paul says in Romans, it's acceptable that to come with everything that we are, lavishly laid down in response. Living this lavish love in response to his lavish love for us. The battle to be holy, as John Piper says, a battle fought at the level of what we love. What will we choose to love? And see, Romans 12, it talks about presenting everything that we are. And it, sometimes it sounds like a, you know, an opportunity to, to lack and, well, okay, we've just got to give everything up on the altar. I would suggest a different picture. Think of, instead of maybe the altar imagery, Think about the marriage vow and the marriage covenant. In fact, in chapter 7, he talks about being set free from the law to belong to or to be married to another. There, there is this picture of a covenant that God makes with his people. In fact, Paul says elsewhere, doesn't he? He says the love or the covenant between a husband and wife is reflecting the love that Christ has for his church. That's why it's, it's such a profound picture. One man and one woman reflecting the glorious creation and intent of God, ultimately reflecting his love and his purpose and his intent. Well, as you, as you come to a marriage, and I've had the privilege over the years to conduct many ma- marriages, and there's this joy, you know, there's something special about that moment, isn't there? As the, the bride comes in and there's normally some emotion, there's usually some kind of emotion, there's tears, there's celebration, there's... All sorts of things happening. But it's this incredible moment as two people do what? As they completely commit their lives to another person. I mean, think about the notion. And even in um, the Australian wedding marriage system, you are required as part of the ceremony to remind the people that are getting married that this is a voluntary commitment you're making for life. You're choosing for life to lay down your desires so that you might be joined to another. I mean, that's the notion. I know that we, we don't see perfect reflections of marriage in our society. That's not what I'm saying. But at its essence, that is the notion of a marriage covenant, isn't it? Laying down everything that you have for another. That's not a reluctance. I've never been in a wedding where there's some thought of, oh, I don't know, well, to be honest, I'm here, but yeah, I, I can't lay that down. I'm sorry. You know, here's... here's Oops, yeah, well, maybe, maybe I could do that. Can we negotiate? Is there, is there some middle? You don't get that, do you? Because it's your joy. The bride, she comes down. 
here's, here's the one I've waited my whole life for. Here it is, you know, in a perfect moment. And it's my joy to just lay down everything that I have on the altar. This, this is worth the price. It's laying down, but it's laying down for the prize that I'm getting of joining my life to another. Do you, do you understand the sense and the notion there? No? Is that, we're still awake and alive. I know it's a long weekend. You see, there, there, is, there is this notion that I believe we, we miss and we gloss over, and it's so important. I had, let me share this. I don't know if I would, but we'll put it out there. I had this dream, it's probably six or seven years ago now, and in this dream, I don't get many dreams, I very rarely share them, that's why I was like, nah, I don't know if I will, but we're halfway through now, we'll just edit this out later. Uh, but I, I had this dream, and in this dream, it was the scene of a, a wedding, it was a wedding scene, and there was this joyous moment between a bride and a husband committing their lives to one another. It was joy, it was celebration, and I was seeing these snapshots of their, you know, their marriage, this, this perfectly happy union. But then in, in the dream, it shifted scenes, and all of a sudden, this bride, who at one stage had been joyful, she began to commit adultery. Not just once, but time and time again, she was chasing after other lovers and other lovers, and eventually there's this moment where the husband found out, and... Like in the dream, I woke up at that point and I felt physically ill. Do you ever have those dreams where you just wake up? Like I wasn't, I wasn't angry, I wasn't upset. I was like physically ill as I felt the grief of this husband as he found out about what his wife had been up to, this wife that he'd given his life for and to. And as I was feeling physically ill, I wake up from the dream and God just spoke to me and he said, Andrew, that's how I feel about my church. That's how I feel about a bride who just chases after other lovers. That's how I feel about sin. And I knew he was talking about stuff in my own life too. Not something to be flippant with. In fact, sometimes I've read Laodicea as, as um, Jesus talks about this lukewarm church. He talks about being ill. And I always thought that, you know, that spewing out of the mouth expression was almost an act of anger. But I felt as I woke up from the stream, it gave me a new impression. I think it was just an, an act of feeling so heartbroken, so sick. Like, I'd rather you be hot or cold. But obviously, you'd rather us be hot. He loves us. But I'd rather you be cold. There's nothing worse than a compromised church. And I just think, and I know we're getting a bit heavy, but sin is a heavy topic. And I think we're so quick to gloss over sin in our lives, in our church. If I'm to be honest for a moment, I've had more conversations in the last probably 24 months with people in general, but even people in our own church who've come to me and they've said, you know what, I want to follow Jesus, but there's this one area of my life that I'm, just not, I'm not ready to give to Him. There's this one sin that I really enjoy. I just want to continue on this path. And if nothing else this morning, I want you to hear the heartbreak of a Savior who bled and died for you. Holiness is not a works trip. It's not, well, here's 15,000 things. You know, it's, it's the wide open love and mercy of a Savior who's given everything to covenant and commit himself to us.
What a gift. Why would we take for granted? Why would we dip back into the grave and just indulge in the passions of the flesh? It's the thing he saved us from. And he's calling his church. We're in a season where there is an unsettling. There's a resurfacing. There's a bringing to the surface of all sorts of issues. And we talked as we began this series about some of the stuff we're seeing around us in the world. And it breaks your heart, doesn't it? (laughs) Parades and parading everything that God hates and despises in the society. And it's, it's terrible. But do you know what I believe breaks the Lord's heart even more than the stuff that's going on in the world? I believe it's the stuff that's going on here. It's a people who won't take his love and his grace and his mercy and the blood-bought gift that he offers us for granted. And it's the people who are willing to turn back to him. See, so often we have this notion of sin. You know, sin, one of the definitions is is missing the mark, and we think, well, we're trying to head at the target, and somehow it just got off course. The notion of that word is actually very different. It's not aiming for the target and slightly missing. It's a moment where, for some reason, we've chosen another target. There's a sense in which all sin comes from this root of a lack of ability to trust in God. For some reason, he's not big enough, he's not good enough, I know better, he's not wise enough. I can make my own decisions. And rather than choosing him, we drink from the systems of human endeavor. Indulge the passions of our flesh. Can we get the worship team back out here? There's this, this, this moment, and I'll finish with this. This moment in uh, Jeremiah chapter 2 is God just unpacks his heart to the prophet Jeremiah. And he begins Jeremiah chapter 2. You can read it in your own time. and It's, it's this incredible picture. He's saying, I want you to remember and recognize that I've made a covenant with you as a husband makes with a bride. That's literally what he says. That's the way he viewed his covenant. It's his old covenant. Even more so now. He said, I, I, I covenanted, I promised you all of these blessings. I promised to take care of you. I promised so many things. And yet it goes on in Jeremiah 2.13. Verse 12, it says this. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they've hewed out systems for themselves. Broken systems that can hold no water. Two sins. One is they've forsaken. They've forgotten. They've lost sight of me. The God who's offered them living water. And instead, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves. You know, I remember reading that years ago. And I read the word cistern and I thought, I genuinely thought, I thought it meant toilet, toilet bowl. That's, that's what I thought. It kind of works for the picture, doesn't it? There's living water on offer and yet they've created for themselves Toilet bowls. They're drinking from the cesspool of life. When there is life on offer. Why would you do that? My people that I've covenanted with. Catherine earlier, she was quoting from 1 Peter. 
This is the reality. She, she talks about where we're born again to living hope, a perishable inheritance. This faith, this unshakable faith filled with unspeakable, unquenchable joy. In fact, first Peter goes on. He talks about even the angels. They desire to look into these things. I mean, they're, they're looking on in wonder as this God has chosen and loved and sacrificed himself for a bride, a people of his own possession, that he might present her to him as a perfect and pure and spotless bride. That's his desire and his delight. I tell you what, if the angels are looking on in wonder at that reality and notion, I hate to think what their thought process is as they look at a church that when that is on offer, they're instead drinking from every other source other than from the living water that he offers, the life that he gives to us. See, repentance is not just turning from, it's turning to. It's coming back to that place where we recognize and realize and choose him. God, I'm sorry, my eyes have been everywhere else but where they need to be. Coming back to that place, so captured and captivated by the beautiful Savior He is, that we're running to the altar to lay it all afresh before Him. The battle to be holy, the battle for sanctification, it's a battle fought at the level of what we love, cherish, treasure, and delight in. It's not a new set of works, holiness. It's living with a new passion. It's where the passion of living fully in the life and love of Christ swallows up any remnant of the fleeting passions of this world. But we come back to that place. I don't know how much time we've got left, but I want to just open up as long as we have. And I want to give us an invitation to anybody who's willing. There's no compulsion here. You can respond where you are in your seats. But I really feel there's something significant, important, just that the worship team plays for us to come and to just kneel at the altar, to recommit our lives to Him, to lay our lives afresh upon the altar. In view of His mercy, recognizing again who He is, there's no better response, there's no more joyous response than just to come and to kneel. You can come now. You don't need to wait till I finish. I'm going to pray. But I want to, I want to encourage you. I want to, something about prophetically that action of just coming forward and kneeling at the altar. It's my prayer and my desire that we would be a people. that burning passion of first love. That we would with joy repent and bring forth the fruits of repentance. That's what scripture talks about. It's not a one-off thing. It's a continual turning back to him. That's the moment this morning. The good news is it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done capacity this morning to come and to just kneel 
and surrender your life afresh to Him. You know, it might be this morning as well that there are particular things that as we're speaking, and I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal. If there is specific patterns of sin, maybe it's a whole area of your life, there is a grace and there's an invitation this morning. Scriptures it talks about confessing your sins to one another that you might be healed. Whereas literally is made whole, wholeness. To break the power of secret sin. And so I'm going to ask the prayer team to come forward. They're going to be standing at either side. And if there is things that you know you need to confess, I want to encourage you to go and see them, to confess, and to allow them to pray that that power of sin would be broken, that our eyes would not be continually drawn to things other than Him. So King Jesus, come and have your glory this morning. Let's pray, Holy Spirit, that you move amongst us. Pray both that you would convict us of anything that is not right in our lives. And I pray that through your love and your grace and your tender mercy, as your word says, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, that you would draw us back to you. That you do a fresh work of holiness. You'd fan the flame of fresh and passionate love in the hearts of your people this morning. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Rest upon us. Shine the light of your glorious grace. Draw us to your heart today. May we be the people, as Paul calls us to be. There's no greater joy than coming down that aisle to willingly, freely, joyfully offer ourselves to you afresh for you are the one who's offered yourself to us make us into your bride pure and spotless